Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you uh, with uh, reverence and, and eager hearts, Lord, to uh, learn the truths uh, that are found in, in your word. Lord, I just uh, pray this morning that, that my clumsy efforts would in no way impede the truths of the gospel. I just pray, Lord, for open hearts and open minds, Lord, as we encounter you over these next few moments, for it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, real faith. Uh, when I say real faith, uh, I, I'm not talking about monks who go up to the mountain and say pious platitudes. Uh, what I mean by real faith is this confident belief in God that manifests itself within the real, the messy, the here and now of 2011. Uh, real faith in, in Tomball, Texas, or wherever you happen to be uh, on a day-to-day basis. I believe that real faith is something that, that seems, at least in my mind, to be an ever-increasing uh, short supply uh, in our culture. It, just by a show of hands before we start this morning, how many of us are facing a problem or a real challenge either this morning or imminently this week? Any of you? <clears throat> I, I would think most of us are. I, I had one of those weeks, no, that no matter what I did, I seemed to get the opposite outcome of what I desired. I literally felt like I was at war with the world for a few days uh, this week, and all this stuff would come home, and in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, you got to go prepare this really spiritual sermon, and, and what I really want to do is go wring somebody's neck. And so it, it, it's not real conducive for sermon preparation, so <clears throat> hold on, I'm not sure what's going to happen today, but... Uh, the truth is, real faith can manifest itself in, in a situation that, by its very nature, tests your faith. One of the most frightening things is to be assigned a sermon about real faith and come up here and preach it and, in the back of your mind, say, well, I hope God doesn't call me on this this week. But, um, any rate, so real faith can happen when events occur that, that by nature, test your faith, like when a doctor calls and says, you know, we've ran some tests on your daughter, and I think that some of it suggests malignancy, and I, I want to talk to you about that. Or, or maybe if you're a, a wife, and your husband comes in and says, I think call it, God is calling me to quit this good-paying job that I have, and maybe follow God in full-time ministry. Or, or maybe your boss calls, and he says, you know, the company's downsizing, and I need to see you in my office. It's those moments that make you freeze in your tracks with fear and dread. Those are often the moments that I think can test and show what kind of faith that you really possess. However, it doesn't have to be those moments. Your real faith can also be tested by months and even years of praying and you're not seeing any answers. Some of you are having your faith tested right now. And you're not exactly sure how you should respond. And it's, and it's a tough time. So let, let's take a look this morning in the Psalms and examine what they can uh, teach us about real faith. <clears throat> to begin with this morning, I, I want to point out a few things or reiterate a few things before we start. Is that as a Bible church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. In other words, the Bible is the actual words of God. We believe Scripture in its original form is also inerrant and completely sufficient. And when I say inspired, what do I mean by that? I mean that the Bible was actually written by God 
through the hands of men who were chosen by God. And, and as a result, every word of Scripture is intentional and it has a divine purpose. So why then didn't God just choose one guy like Solomon or Paul and say, here, read Gen- write Genesis through Revelations for me? Why didn't he just pick one guy instead of choosing various men at various times to complete the canon of Scripture over a long period of time? Well, if, if you look at Scripture, you're going to find that it exists in different forms. So in Scripture, you will find historical narrative, which are stories, and that's like Genesis and Exodus and Acts. And there actually are some letters, like the book of Galatians and Ephesians. And also we find in Psalms poetry and music. Now, as a guy, I'm not drawn to poetry and music. Some people are, and that's okay. I don't understand it, but some people are. But even though... Every word of Scripture is inspired by God. The men he chose to write various parts of the Bible, well, they express God's word in different styles. And you can readily see these differences. If you look at the writing style of Luke the physician versus Peter the fisherman, they have different uh, writing styles. Peter probably had to have a better editor. But as a result... What we see in Scripture, then, is that God chose to reveal different aspects of himself by using different types of literature and by using the different writing styles of human authors of Scripture. Okay, so why is this so important this morning when we're supposed to be studying Psalms? Well, when studying the Psalms, we must realize that God chose David and poetry to reveal something that only David and poetry could reveal. So you will find that, that Psalms is, is, is very unique in several aspects. Uh, number one, I, I believe Psalms is intensely personal. Unlike a lot of other narratives, Psalms is intensely personal. Also, I believe Psalm expresses raw emotion, something most of us men are kind of uncomfortable with, but Psalms expresses raw emotion unlike any other book. And, and finally, you'll also see that Psalms, it expresses God's sentiment of, I know exactly what you're going through more than any other book in the Bible, I believe. As such, Psalms walks us through real pain. It walks us through real doubts and real fears. And it paints this picture of, for us of what real faith looks like in real life. Okay. <clears throat> That being said and done, before we read the, the Psalms, the scriptures that we have assigned for this morning, I, I want to outline for you something that I think you will find useful when reading in the book of Psalms. In, in almost every Psalm, in every chapter, I, I think if you look, you can find three main elements, especially if you combine some of the chapters that were written together. So, so three main elements. Element number one, in each Psalm, you're going to find a problem that's expressed by the author. So the author is facing a problem and he puts that down in the Psalms. <clears throat> the author's challenge, though, in writing a Psalm is to identify the real underlying problem. So quite often, this problem is actually the very thing that, that's frustrating the author's relationship with God. Now, within the element of this, this problem, the author will often state how he feels about the problem. 
So one of the reasons I have to struggle with Psalms is David is, he has a bent toward hyperbole. So in other words, David will say, Lord, I'm coming before you and there has never, never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever been anything this bad before. I stubbed my toe this week. Now, I know none of us communicate with God that way, but perhaps some of us do. But element number one is this real problem. Element number two. All the Psalms contain what Jim Leffler describes as self-talk. And self-talk is really nothing more than a pep talk for yourself. So in Psalms, self-talk will include things like, what do I know about the Lord? What is at stake here? And most importantly, what is God calling me to in this situation or this problem? So element number one is this problem. Element number two is this self-talk. And element number three, the, the last element that's either stated or implied in almost every psalm is a prayer. And it's not just any prayer. It's a prayer that is an expression of the author's truest longing. You'll see his truest, most sincerest beliefs in this prayer. And often the prayer will include intercession and or petitioning of God. So there are three elements to each psalm which don't appear necessarily in any particular order. So you kind of have to go and find those. One is problems, one is the self-talk, and one is prayer. Okay, so with these three elements in mind, I want to ask you this morning now to turn to uh, Psalms chapter 27. <clears throat> this morning as we go through these scriptures, you can read along with those in your Bible or they'll be uh, displayed on the screen above us in the, uh, in the NIV. Okay, so Psalms 27, we're going to start off with the first three verses. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advanced against me to devour my flesh. Really, David? (laughs) When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even even then I will be confident. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, it's easy to see that David's problem is that he has enemies that not only want to wage war against him, but they want to kill him. But remember that the challenge to each problem presented in the Psalms is to identify the underlying spiritual problem. So look again at verses 1 and 3. And what you will see, that the real problem is not David's enemies. The real problem is David's own fear. Now, as a man, I find that encouraging, that someone who is touted to have killed a bear and a lion and Goliath with a rock has fear. And so I'm encouraged by that when when I face fear. Okay. Now that we see the real problem, the problem is fear, do you see any self-talk in these verses. Well, in verse 1, David states that the Lord is the stronghold of my life and the Lord is his light and salvation. Now, what does David say that God is calling him to with this self-talk? Well, the the answer is in verse 3. God is calling David to be confident. Okay, let's jump down to verses 4 and 6 real quickly. Beginning in verse 4, it says... 
one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to see him, seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So here, beginning in verse 4, we have David's prayer. But, you know, considering his problem, he doesn't pray for what we would expect. David does not pray for victory in battle or escape from his foes. David asks just one thing that one day he would be with the Lord. You see, after David realizes that his real problem is fear, he then reminds himself of this powerful, awesome, and faithful God that he serves. And then David responds with his prayer with remarkable wisdom. David's fears of the present are replaced by longing for his future home. Do you see what happens there? You see, David has now put fear in proper perspective. Every time fear is seen from the view of an eternal perspective, fear then loses its power. David affirms that emotions, although present and often useful, emotions don't rule, truth does. And David illustrates in Psalms 27 that real faith springs from an eternal perspective. Holding to God's truths regardless of our circumstances and inevitably this fear is replaced with a longing for God. In Skeet's sermon last week, he made what I thought was a profound statement that's been rattling around in my head all week. He said that Christians hardly long for heaven anymore. And I was thinking about that. And I think it's because of instead of longing for heaven, instead we long for a better life now. What's the book say? Your Better Life Now, I think is the title of the book. We long for fulfillment in one thing or another, and we chase after every cultural whim. Unfortunately, I think in many churches today, Christianity and a life of faith has been reduced to a set of principles that are designed to make us more successful or wealthy, and there's no longer a desire for the presence of the Father. That, my friends, is not real faith. That is materialism. It's plain and simple. And David underscores this very principle in Psalm 62. So let's let's go to Psalm 62. Beginning in verse 1. Psalm 62, verse 1 says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Jump down now in the converse to verses 9 and 10. It says, Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. And get this, what David says, probably one of the wealthiest men on the planet. He says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. If you look up the word fear in the dictionary, you'll actually see the word defined as agitation, apprehension, or anxiousness about a real or anticipated threat. 
And if the same dictionary, you flip over and you look at the definition of faith, it's defined as confident belief. So fear and faith are almost exact opposites. And David realizes this very principle in numerous psalms. Real faith now doesn't exempt us from fear, don't get me wrong, but it does allow us to face our emotions with confidence. It allows us to trump fear with truth. When we face fear, God is calling us to confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in in Him. I believe that at its very core, real faith is about facing fear with confidence in God. Okay, I've gone at it pretty hard here. I'm going to stop and go back to my field, something I understand more. I I want to look at a real-world model of facing fear and pain. Part of pediatric practice is performing these well-child exams or, or checkups. And at some of these checkups, vaccinations are due. One such time where shots are scheduled is at the four-year-old wellness exam. The parents who have had four-year-olds are chuckling already, okay? So when they turn four, they get their checkup, and then they are administered four shots right after that. Now, for most four-year-olds, the thought of four shots is a cause for some concern, maybe some fear. Well, as a pediatrician, I have had the privilege of observing families in this situation thousands of times where their four-year-old is at the office to get their vaccines, okay? After observing this scenario, I have come up with several categories of shot day coping mechanisms, Now, before I describe these categories, I realize that a a large number of my patients attend here. And so any similarities to your family is completely coincidental. Okay, pain model number one. The four-year-old is brought to their appointment. And when I finish their exam, their mom or dad leans over and whispers to me, He doesn't know he's getting shots. (laughs) Can you tell him so I don't have to? So model number one, I have dubbed the shot day orphan. Because his parents have failed to inform, prepare, or assist their child in facing this moment. 99% of the time, this child is quite angry about the whole situation. And when he gets his shots, his tears are less from pain and more about a feeling of betrayal by people he trusted who set him up. And I'm going to tell you, that is a child that leaves with just a little bit of bitterness from my office. All right, model number two, moving closer to home. This four-year-old is brought to their appointment, and they have been told that they are getting shots, and they have been told that their shots that when they get their shots, they will be compensated for their pain. (laughs) This compensation I have observed to range anything from a trip to the ice cream parlor up to recently $100. 25 bucks a shot was the deal. So model number two, I will call the shot day materialist. 
And their visit usually goes something like this. Three nurses are required to pin the child down to administer their shots. And if you've seen my nurses, that's saying something. They're tough girls. So three nurses are required to hold them down. Chairs are overturned. Ceiling tiles are knocked loose. The child is screaming, I hate you, at his parents. Finally, I'm forced to bring a taser into the room. (laughs) Not really. I don't bring a taser in there. but I thought about it, but I didn't do it. Now, after the shots have been administered, inevitably, as a child is being led out of the office and their mom comes out of the room with a child in their arms, mom's hair is all mussed to one side and her shirt is torn, and without fail, she looks at her child right in front of me and says, you did such a great job. I am so proud of you. Let's go get you a treat. Now, before we get too far down this, I have to make a confession that my oldest daughter's four-year-old shots cost us a stroller Barbie. But (laughs) nonetheless, hi, Megan. So now this child's tears are also less about pain and more about a loss of control and a demand for compensation. That is a child that has planted a seed of greed and materialism because he believes that things equal control. So we've got two models here, the shot day orphan and the shot day materialist. Model number three. This four-year-old is brought to their appointment and had been fully briefed on what is to take place and what is expected of them. This child's parent has developed trust with that child long before my office visit. And so when they tell the child that the shots may hurt just for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long, the child actually believes them. I will call this model the shot day star. This child rarely cries, and when he does, it's short-lived, and there is no angerness, resentment, or a demand for compensation. Now here's the key point here, get this. This shot day star, this child, experienced the same shots as in the first two models. Same amount of pain, same experience. But because of trust and faith in his parents, this child faced the pain with much more confidence than the first two categories that I described. Now, if we take and apply this shot day pain model to the concept of real faith, I believe there are some distinct parallels that arise when adults face fear and pain. So we have these faith parallels to my pain model. Let's go over a few of those. Model number one, these are people without faith. Just like the shot day orphan, the response to pain and fear is bitterness and anger. They have no faith to give them confidence, and their pain results in a feeling of isolation and injustice. Model number two. These are people with a dysfunctional faith. Just like the shot day materialist, their confidence is in material things like money, and their greatest fear and pain arises from a perceived loss of things. 
Things and money represent control, and loss of things means a loss of control. Although they are believers, their hope lies in the things of this world. And for them, Christianity has become this model for worldly success, not a desire for the Father. Their pain is an occasion of shock and betrayal because the things they trusted have failed to deliver on their promises. And no amount of positive thinking has changed things. Let's go a little further. What what does this dysfunctional faith model look like at a church-wide level? This type of church will have a ministry model based upon secular wisdom. Its ministry model is based upon secular business models Their success is based completely upon attendance numbers and money and facilities. As a result, their business model is to do everything and anything to attract people to their opulent facility and be absolutely careful to avoid elements of Scripture that might offend and thereby affect attendance. All right, let's go to model number three. People with real faith. Just like the shot day star in our pain model, people of real faith can face fear with confidence. Their trust is not shaken by a change in their circumstances. Pain is a time to lean on their Heavenly Father because He has proved faithful. Their outlook is eternal, and their greatest longing is for the Father. Their relationship with the Father is not determined by their current level of material blessings. What does this look like at a church-wide level? I believe this church has as its ministry model the New Testament. Its real, ever-encompassing mission is equipping believers and advancing the undiluted, life-changing truths of the gospel. For this church, money and materials and facilities are secondary and have no value whatsoever except as tools to help realize their mission as believers. Okay, if you consider these categories of faith, One thing is certain. If you try to live within a model of real faith, I can assure you that you will get tons of advice from wise people with a dysfunctional faith. So turn with me now to Psalms chapter 11. And let's look at the first seven verses there. Actually, there's only seven verses. So So Psalms chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, it says... In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, and a scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And get get this, what David says. The last thing he says in response to this threat is, upright men will see his face. David has some counseling being given that's to him that's bad advice in this chapter and he responds with self-talk again about what he knows and in the end he expresses his greatest longing that he will see his face 
And you see this pattern over and over again in the Psalms. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, and on and on and on. And it ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. So David shows us that to live a life with real faith, we often have to stop looking around and look up. And when everything of this world that now seems so valuable is burnt up and gone, we will see his face. Let's look at some applications for this morning. What truths and applications can we take away from today's teachings in this Psalms about real faith? Well, number one, God never changes. When God, I mean, sorry, who God is, is not changed by whatever we are currently facing. Number two, the flip side. Who we are in God's eyes, who we are in Christ, is not a product of our current circumstances. Number three, and I think the church needs to hear this more often because there's a lot of pastors out there who are teaching contrary to this. But number three says, according to the Psalms, God anticipates that we will sometimes face problems that seem intolerable and insurmountable. And they're not because you didn't think positive. They're because God willed it. So God anticipates that we will sometimes face problems that seem intolerable and insurmountable. Number four, the problems we face can be a vehicle for change in our lives and for God to be glorified through us. Again, the problems we face can be a vehicle for change and it can be a chance for us to glorify the Father. Number five, in light of God's Word... We can face real problems, real pain, and real fear with confidence because of God's love for us. Experiencing pain and fear is not because God is suddenly absent in our life. If anything, he'll draw closer to you if you have confidence in him. Number six, as the body of Christ, we should make every effort to affirm and encourage people in our body who are facing problems, pain, or fear. Why? Because this life is hard. It is not the home that, as believers, we should be longing for. The corporate church, the the body of Christ, God didn't invent that so that we could have a better life now, so that we could outdo the rest of the world in materialism. He brought us to be together, to support one another, to love one another until we see him again. I received an email this week that many of you also received from uh, Jason Beal. Uh, Jason has faced some really tough weeks recently, and, and a lot of guys have been really praying for him. And here's the email that he sent. <clears throat> he said, I just wanted to let you guys know that your prayers made the difference. I accepted a position with a new firm that is up and coming with a great family atmosphere and a lot of my old friends. They are giving me an opportunity to make a difference and grow with a firm. I really appreciate the encouragement and support. My family is very grateful to be able to lean on such a great family of believers as TBC. Without your help, our family would have never made it through. God does bless and God does provide. Make no mistake about it. And I'll see you guys on August 20th. Sincerely, the Beale family. 
John 16.33 says, In this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you are facing trouble, real fear and real dread this morning, I want to tell you that you're not alone. And I want to invite you this morning that while we sing in just a few minutes, to just bring it before the Father. He's faithful. You don't have to face your problems alone because if you were a child of God, you are not an orphan and you can have confidence in Him. Real faith is this. Regardless of what you face, you can find rest in Him and know that one day you're going to see His face. So let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, in this culture that's full of junk and ideas and advice that really has nothing to do with your word and has nothing to do with the family of God. And Lord, when we try these methods, these advices of the world, Lord, we're left brokenhearted and disillusioned. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that for many of us facing problems and struggling this morning, that this morning would be an occasion where we turn back to the Father, where we take this fear and we put it in perspective and we replace real fear with a longing for the Father, for a longing for our home. Lord, we love you and we ask that you just bless the remainder of this service, this time of worship, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.